मोटमाद पॉडकास्ट हेलो एंड वेलकम टू अनदर एपिसोड ऑफ आई वेंट बैक टू प्रोट यू बाय मोटमाउथ मीडिया अ पॉडकास्ट वेयर अ पास्ट एंड प्रेजेंट होल्ड अ मिरर टू ईच अदर शोइंग हाउ वन ओज इट्स एक्जिस्टेंस टू द अदर आई एम योर होस्ट कल्याण होपलेसली कॉट इन बिटवीन दीस मिरर्स ट्राइंग टू मेक सेंस ऑफ इट ऑल ऑल आवर लाइव्स आर पंक्चुएटेड बाय मल्टीट्यूड ऑफ पीपल मोमेंट्स एंड इंस्टेंसेस सीमिंगली आइसोलेटेड फ्रॉम ईच अदर बट व्हिच टग एट अस इन क्वाइट द सेम वेज suggesting even if subtly some sort of a kinship between them like siblings disunited at birth and unaware of each other's existence even when we sometimes manage to faintly pick up on them we quickly dismiss them as being just too inscrutable to occupy our already busy minds but every once in a while these things have a way of making themselves known like it happened with me recently and when it happened it was through a dream the most cliche of all illusions isn't it this dream played out like several scenes in one and helped me identify how so many things which i had perceived in isolation were actually like collinear points joined by a faint thread before talking about the dream itself i want to say what it did to me and that is in a way the whole point of this episode The dream provoked memories of a Hindi poem I had read as an impressionable 17-year-old back in school. It was a short poem titled Torti Patthar, meaning she who broke stones, written by Suryakant Tripathi, better known to the world by his nom de plume Nirala. I had been too young and callow back then to recognize the enormous fascination and regard I felt for this poem. I had, however, read in my textbook an act I realize now I owe to the poem itself. As I rummaged it out of an old trunk with its pages the color of pale coffee and my scribblings all over, my memories rushed in like a stifled mob breaking the barricades. I knew this textbook had much more to teach me today. than it did all those years ago torti patthar in this poem nirala talks about a fleeting experience he had on the streets of ilahabad when he encountered a woman on its streets dekha use maine ilahabad ke path par vah torti patthar the young sturdy woman is breaking stones unmindful of her bare harsh surroundings made allegorically harsher by the presence of a large palatial mansion within view koi na chhaya dar ped ve jiske tale baithi hui swikar guru hathoda haath karti bar bar prahar samne taru malika attalika prakar the ever ascending sun descends cold bloodedly upon the dust laden earth like some bird of prey engulfing everything in its searing heat but she goes on unstoppably rui jo jaldi hui bhu gard chingi cha gayi pray hui dopahar beh torti patthar and at one pregnant moment she stops to give an indifferent stare first to the onlooking poet and then at the mansion 
देखते देखा मुझे तो एक बार उस भवन की ओर देखा छिन्नतार शी रिगार्ड्स हिम विद बैटर्ड बट अनबेटाइज दिस मोमेंट इनहेबिटेड बाय जस्ट द टू ऑफ देम टक्स एट द पोएट लाइक अ प्रैक्टिस्ड फिंगर टकिंग एट द स्ट्रिंग्स ऑफ अ सितार टू प्रोड्यूस अ पियर्सिंग नोट देखकर कोई नहीं देखा मुझे उस दृष्टि से जो मार खा रोई नहीं सजा सहज सितार सुनी मैंने वह नहीं जो थी सुनी झनकार एंड शी रिज्यूम्स टू स्ट्राइक इम पैसिवली ऑन द स्टोन्स विथ ऑल द फोर्स ऑफ अर आर्म एंड हर माइंड यू मे रीड द एंटायर पोम अलॉन्ग विद एन एमिटरिश इंग्लिश ट्रांसलेशन बाई मीन द ट्रांसक्रिप्ट ऑफ दिस एपिसोड As I read and reread the poem at an epiphanic moment I realized that through their brief visual union the stone breaking lady in Torti Patthar and the poet himself were the parents to those separated siblings I alluded to earlier the provenance to all those cryptically connected faces and encounters lay in the poem the thread wasn't quite faint anymore it was much stronger and explicit the poem is remarkable in its brevity a few words which create a poignant picture and the picture being true to its nature speaks a thousand words in return the true mark of chayavad of which this poem is considered a great specimen for those more familiar with english literature chayavad is more akin to romanticism and nirala arguably one of its greatest exponents Born in Medinipur, Bengal, where he also spent his formative years, Nirala's first language was Bengali alongside Sanskrit. The inveterate romantic that he was, despite it being one of the later languages he imbibed, he chose Hindi as his primary language of expression solely upon his wife's insistence, who he loved beyond himself. Alas, throughout his life he consistently ran out of people he could shower his limitless love upon. Even before he entered middle age he had lost all his close family members Every chapter of Nirala's biography will read like a tragedy each more catastrophic and sordid than the other And happiness in any form was so scarce and short-lived that it only augmented the motive of pathos and plaintiveness in his life And while his own fate abused him he was also cursed to face much derision and disdain from the outside world A fine piece written on him some years ago in the Hindi edition of The Wire likens him to the Greek demigod Prometheus, someone who underwent unfathomable suffering for the sake of humankind. The piece is beautifully titled Nirala, Wish Speaker, Amrit Barsane Wale Kavi, or The Poet Who Consumed Poison to Yield Elixir. Nirala's anguish had truly embellished the language. His work Saroj Smriti which he wrote in remembrance of his daughter Saroj who died when she was merely 18 is arguably his best work Like Prometheus Nirala too provided that fire to Hindi literature but the incandescence of which was hardly perceived during his lifetime Much of the recognition and adulation for him has been posthumous He died a sad, delusional, schizophrenic man, having no cognizance of how strongly he had engraved his name in the canons of modern Hindi literature. He was fundamentally a non-conformist and a rebel, a streak that also shows in his writings, in his use of extensive free verse and his general autonomy of form. 
he brought together elements of nationalism mysticism a love for nature and above all a deep seated humanism in his works making him the voice of things and people which couldn't speak for themselves it is through his compelling words in torti patthar that the mute laboring lady speaks to me now ever more than she did before it is owing to the magic of his writing that i have been able to discern now and then faces similar to the stone breaking ladies even if they were damned to forever remain obscure and irrelevant faces that i wish to speak about today in this episode so yes it wasn't the dream that invoked the memories of nirala's poem it was actually his imagery in the first place which lent the frames to the dream nirala's words not only paint a picture of his times but also actualize the realities of ours how ill fated for a stone breaker lady and for him too nirala would only have wished for his art to live forever not its realism on the other side of the break the faces and of course the dream Many years ago when I lived in Kolkata I had befriended a man one rainy evening under unusual circumstances On my way back from office my motorbike had broken down and I had to stop at an allegedly shady neighborhood to get it fixed This man had been running a sweet shop right next to the bike mechanics shop Seeing me as an anomalous stranger who didn't quite belong there he had let me into his shop while my bike got fixed and conversed with me His name as I learned eventually was Shah Jalal Haider. He wore a netted vest, an amulet fastened to his arm, and a flowing beard sans the mustache. Troops which betrayed his religion only further. His shop though was named Radhe Shyam Sweets with images of Lord Krishna and Chaitanya Mahaprabhu adorning its oily green walls. He was a scant mass of a man, not quite in keeping with his voice, which was a booming rich baritone. He spoke flawless Bengali, but it had sounded more domesticated than local, showing a faint trace of not belonging to the place. There was an inherent evenness to his personality, which he carried like a good novel carried a motive. He was neither shy nor effusive, and mostly incurious. He kept a somewhat serious demeanor, but never withheld a smile if he had to. His natural disposition was marked by a sense of temperance and restraint, something like a terrav that fine actors often brought to their performance. If at all, the one thing immoderate about him, as I observed in due course, was he gave more than he took. Over the next months, I occasionally stopped over at his shop, and we had come to know about each other a little more. He had only revealed that he was a migrant, but hadn't said where from. There had also been a reticent young boy around 14-15 years of age assisting him in his shop. In all my visits, this boy never spoke a word or made eye contact with me. His name, I was told, was Inkilab, and he was an orphan nephew of Shah Jalal's, whom he had adopted. Shah Jalal had no children of his own, and his wife had passed away some years ago of tuberculosis, and he himself had been a survivor of the wild disease. Eventually my visits to his shop had stopped because I had begun traveling extensively as part of my work and was hardly living in Kolkata. One day a good 3 or 4 years after my last visit I happened to pass by the shop and I stopped to check. 
the sweet shop wasn't there anymore. It had become something else not worth remembering. I asked around and came to know that Shahjalal had had a relapse of tuberculosis and had succumbed to it a year ago. The shop and their home had been appropriated by a local ghoul and Inkilab had left the area, no one any the wiser about him or his whereabouts. My familiarity with Shahjalal had never really grown into intimacy. That was a wall of his I hadn't managed to scale. In all our meetings, I never got to ask or tell him about the endearing paradox that his shop had been. His own name, that of a 15th century Sufi saint, Hazrat Shah Jalal, who is considered to have brought Islam to Bengal, and he also had been a great devotee of Chaitanya, who was a Vaishnavite Bhakti saint. Was this merely an unwitting coincidence, or had Shah Jalal gone out of his way to assert an alternate identity? I wondered if there were actually people around us whose anonymity was just as desirable to them as their identity. Since then, Shah Jalal's memories have permeated my mind, but occupied a space only as moderate as the man himself. And Inkilab? What about him? Often the second time over. Some years later, in my present city of residence, when we had moved to our new home, I had stepped out one day to get eggs from a local eggs and chicken shop and I had seen a somber youth manning the shop, possibly in his early twenties, who spoke the local language fluently. But his accent nonetheless gave him away. I couldn't help thinking if he could be the enigmatic Inkilab I knew. There was certainly a semblance of one in the other, but I also knew that it was a colossal improbability. In the world I inhabited, Inkilabs was a life too insignificant to resurface noticeably. And to add to that, there was not even a faint hint of recognition in him. I had asked him his name and he had responded Munna with a poker face. I knew very well that I'd never find out the truth. Even today, he hardly speaks or makes eye contact. Initially, once or twice, I had the bizarre urge to address him as Inkilab and see if that caught him unawares. But good sense had prevailed. However, each time I visit the shop, I silently nod in remembrance of Shah Jalal and Inkilab. Torti Pathar is from Nirala's celebrated poetry collection, Anamika, meaning she who has no name. It was written almost 90 years ago, a time period by no means insufficient to cause social upheavals and economic turnarounds, and sadly also a time period long enough to habituate and resign ourselves to realities which are beyond change. In a figurative world, why wouldn't the likes of Shah Jalal, Inkilab and Munna trace their antecedents to Lady from Torti Pathar? They have certainly inherited her anonymity, her sense of displacement, her tribulations, her vulnerability, haven't they? And she too has bequeathed to them her resilience, her fortitude, and most importantly, that stoical face and general aloofness of being, hasn't she? And then came her latest offspring. So uncanny was the resemblance with her this time that it was as if she had been reborn. It seemed like a karmic residue from her previous life still remaining to be suffered. For someone who almost never remembers his dreams once awake, this one from some days ago plays out vividly even today in my mind's eye. I had seen a woman, her dupatta tied firmly around her waist on a bicycle pedaling steadily with her back to me. The faster I had tried to catch up with her, the farther she seemed to move. 
Almost as if on cue, she had stopped and turned around right when I had given up the chase. I saw that she was hardly a woman. She was a girl, not a day older than 15 years, who merely endured the bearing and composure of a woman. We made eye contact. Her face was wet and I knew it had to be with sweat because her eyes were just too vacuous even to hold tears. I tried calling out to her, but as is typical in dreams, my voice just failed me. After her brief, impervious stare at me, she turned to look at the blistering sun above us and again began her labored strokes on the pedal. I realized, even if I could have made myself heard, she'd have hardly stopped. Who was she? What was her name? The girl on the bicycle wasn't any surreal being which my mind merely manufactured for the sake of an effect. She was real. And so was her bicycle. She was the 15-year-old girl who travelled 1,200 kilometres over 8 days during the lockdown to return home, partly hitchhiking and partly cycling with her incapacitated father riding billion. And they did this because it had been a more agreeable proposition than just staying where they were. At first, it seemed like one of those make-believe things we so commonly come across nowadays. In fact, it seemed too unreal even for it to be fictitious. I mean, if I saw this happening in a movie or a book, I'd have hardly commended the work for its realism. Unless it was consciously depicting some form of a dystopian reality. Well, last I heard, the girl had been called by the Indian Cycling Federation for trials in recognition of her extraordinary accomplishment, which could mean a change of fate for the better. And she had become a bit of a celebrity too. What with the foreign media covering her and some even calling her a teenage wonder. But this one hell of a ride, literally, wasn't really her quest for fame or an act of gritty heroism. It was just that animal will to hold out and fight for a chance to make the cut. It made me wonder if all was right with the world that celebrated her astounding deed more than it lamented the misery that had caused it. The girl's father is one of millions of migrant workers adversely impacted by the pandemic and the way it has been managed. These are people who easily fall through the cracks in the system and are forever doomed to remain what they are in government records. Informal, unorganized and unregistered. How else does one explain that there was a very brief period initially when the number of deaths caused by the pandemic were comparable to those caused by the lockdown? A measure to curb the pandemic. Close to 900 migrants had died. Some had starved to death. Some had succumbed to unattended curable ailments. Some were simply run over on their way home and some others out of sheer depression. In what is arguably the greatest humanitarian crisis of independent India, concerned citizens and civil society organizations, the ever-trustworthy pressure groups that they are, were the first to be roused to attempt the absurdly impossible task of offsetting state apathy with public philanthropy. And yet they pulled it off, even if within limited scope. 
There are research reports available in the public domain, links to which I shall append in the transcript of this episode, which have documented the sheer magnitude of this crisis. As the numbers, graphs and events unfold in these reports, the pill gets progressively more bitter for the privileged reader to swallow. There hasn't been a more apt example of the most unpleasant and ugly devil residing in the details. These are freakishly tough times even for the privileged. The other day, we were wondering how best could we manage to take our two-year-old out in the sun, even if for 15 minutes, because a pediatrician had ordered for it, you know, to avoid any vitamin D deficiency. This one instance alone puts into perspective how the disparity has been perpetuated, doesn't it? As in how sun-starved we all are, how the kindred of Torti Patthar make the sun-ridden skies their daytime roofs, of how they hog all the vitamin D meant for our children while we wallow in the dim discomforts of the homes they built for us. Sarcasm or no sarcasm, the metaphorical Anamika still outlives herself through her countless rebirths and yet occupies a permanent blind spot in the privileged vision of the world. Unless, of course, she does the confoundingly unthinkable, like the girl on the bicycle. But unlike her, there isn't a Nirala who too could reincarnate himself to wield his words on her behalf, to touch, cut and pierce through our thick skins. Even today, in the high noon of her misery, her dark, beautiful face barely quivers as drops of sweat trace their way down her brow. But neither has she stopped pounding her hammer, nor have we begun to feel the force of it. Ek kshan ke baad beh kaapi sughar Dholak maathe se gire seekar Leen hote karm mein phir jau kaha Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm trying hard, but I'm unable to end this with a sense of hope. I hope, though, that the next thing I will go back to will be less disorienting. Alvida. Motomouth Podcasts.